As Tammy said, my name is Bob Schindler, and I have the honor of being a part of this teaching team for New City Academy with Chris and Gabe and Tammy and Kathy. And I just want to thank all of you all for making the investment of your time and energy to understand more about this one redemptive story. We're all praying that God would use this time to dramatically uh, grow all of us in our grasp and living out of that story. So thank you again for being a part of this. I apologize for my voice. Um, I've been struggling with a cold that I caught from my one-year-old granddaughter on her first birthday. I knew she was sick. She's a daycare child, so she's a living Petri dish, as you all probably know. And for the last 10 days, I've just been struggling to talk. This is actually the best I've been for the, uh, these 10 days. But thank you all for putting up with this tonight. Now, to begin tonight, I want you to think about one of your favorite books. Get that, get that book in your mind. Okay, everybody got it? Now, I want to ask you a question. Do you know why the author wrote that book? If you know why, raise your hand. Okay, look around. Vast majority of us do not know why our favorite books have been written. Um, it's an interesting concept as we look at this subject of relationships rupture. Now, most of you know about the book, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz. Can anybody tell me who wrote that book? Really? Who's, who were those? That was great. Great. That's my favorite story. Your favorite story. Favorite movie. Okay. Great. Now, does anybody know um, the significance of e these characters in the story? Do you, are, they, are they just fictitious characters that Frank dreamed up? to communicate to children, or in fact, did the Tin Man represent the factory workers of the early 1900s when he wrote the book? Did the Cowardly Lion represent the political elite, I mean, the political elite of that day? And did the Scarecrow represent the business leadership of that day? Now, what's the answer? Well, it depends upon who you ask. If you ask people of, that have debated that subject for the last 30 or, 40 or 70 years or so since he wrote the book, you would get different answers. But who do you think we should ask? The author. Now, if he's around and you can ask him, you can say, Frank, why did you write the book? That's called authorial intention. And if that's why you wrote the book, then what do those characters represent? Authorial intention helps you understand the meaning of the book and how each of the parts fits into the whole. Now, authorial intention was the clearly adopted view of the literary world until the last 50 to 70 years. 
you would look at the purpose of the book, why the author wrote it to help you to understand the meaning of the book and the characters of the book and how each part fit into it. And, but in the last 70 years, there has been a growing drift to what's known as reader response. Reader, spot, reader response is where the reader themselves answers the question and Frank Baum is left out of the conversation. And questions like, well, Jay, what did you hear when you read that? Or Dale, what did you see in that, in that book? Now, I bring that up because this drift from authorial intention to reader response has, has impacted the biblical interpretation world significantly within the last 40 years. And often in biblical study, the questions come up, well, what do you think it means? And you, the reader creates the meaning rather than discovering the meaning of authorial intention. Now, that recognition is very important because in this study, we clearly believe that there was a God who communicated through inspired authors in their context, in that specific history, in that specific language, to add to this one great story that the author God himself intended for his audience. We don't create the meaning of this one redemptive story as we read through the Old Testament. We discover what is there. Now, that's important, particularly as we go to this book in Genesis. And I want you to think for a moment with me about the book of Genesis before we jump in to Genesis 3. Who wrote the book of Genesis? Moses. I'm in agreement with most, even almost every evangelical scholar today that would say Moses wrote the book of and of the, uh, the book of Genesis. And for thousands of years until the last 200, it was unanimously agreed that Moses wrote it. Now, who did he write the book of Genesis to? The Israelites. When did he write the book of Genesis? I'm sorry? In the desert. They've left Egypt. They're now going to wander for 40 years in the desert. And he writes the book of Genesis. Why? To remind them of their roots. Why did they need to be reminded of their roots? Ed, great answer. Because they lost their story. They had spent 400 years in Egypt. They had become polytheistic. And we know that very clearly from the, from the book of Exodus. Moses, they, they're delivered dramatically out of Egypt by Yahweh. Moses tells them he's come from Yahweh to deliver his people. They go out into the desert. Moses goes up on Mount Sinai for 40 night, days and 40 nights. And what happens? Say it louder so I can hear you. They create idols. Yeah, they build a calf, a golden calf, and Aaron is even a part of it. You want to see the, 
one of the strangest answers in the history of the Bible is, well, we just threw the earrings in the, in the fire and out came a golden calf, Moses. <laughs> yeah, right. But they immediately went to their polytheistic roots and say at that point, if you look at the passage, that those gods, not Yahweh, were the ones that actually delivered them from Egypt. And so Moses, understanding that, knows that he's got to remind them of the story. You see, when we lose our story, we buy others. Gabe talked about the destructive story that are in our world today. We need reminding regularly of the story of the gospel. Jerry Bridges says, preach the gospel to yourself every day. Because you and I need to remember the story. Now, last week, Gabe reviewed four scenes from that story. Creation, fall, the flood, <clears throat> and the emergence of nations. Think with me for a moment. You're an Israelite, and you just heard as they read Genesis 1 and 2. What did you learn? What did you learn? Bill? Which God? Because they thought lots of gods created. No, Yahweh. But he's not called Yahweh in Genesis 1. What's he called? Elohim, Almighty. Moses picks that very importantly because he wants the Israelites to know it wasn't multitudes of gods. It was one God, their God, Yahweh, who he identifies in Genesis 2, but in Genesis 1, he's God Almighty. And he creates effortlessly. He speaks and the world comes. I mean, think about that. Out of nothing, nothing stops him from speaking and creating. Effortlessly. He doesn't, he doesn't create out of a struggle or because he needs something. He generously outpours himself, as one author says it, into creation. It's incredible. So they also find out that all of creation should be flourishing. That's what Genesis 1 shows. And then Genesis, at the end of that, the pinnacle of all creation comes mankind. And mankind, as Gabe talked about, is given this dignity to be a representative of this God. Old Testament scholar Richard Pratt taught me <clears throat> something on this that really helped. He said, if you remember in those cultures of that time, the kings set up images of themselves to remind the people who was in charge. And they just come from where again? You ever been to Egypt? If you have, you've seen one of those images called the Sphinx. Had a head of a person, the Pharaoh, and the body of a lion. And everybody that walked by is supposed to remember Pharaoh is in charge. God said, I'm not going to take inanimate objects and remind people that I'm in charge. I'm going to create living images of me to show the world 
what I'm like and how it is to be following me as one in charge. That's the dignity we were given. Incredible. And they were given this privilege to, it says, subdue the earth. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but what if the earth was in rebellion? Because that's what we always think about, about subdue. I don't, I don't think there was anything in rebellion, but the rest of the world was in chaos outside the garden. And everything in creation that was latent there was ready to be unveiled or unearthed. Think about this for a moment again. All the literature, all the music, all the art was laying there, waiting for Adam and Eve and all their descendants to bring it out and, and bring it under submission to the purposes God had for it there. What an amazing privilege we had. Think about a world without music for a moment. Stuart, I mean, that would break your heart. It's hard to even imagine a happy world without music, isn't it? Adam and Eve had the privilege to bring it out when there was no music, to create instruments, to have different sounds. So that was just the privilege that they had. And at the end of chapter two, it ends with this capstone. And they were naked and unashamed. It's the epitome of the flourishing that God wanted to demonstrate through Moses to the nation of Israel. They were naked and felt no shame. Now, if they didn't feel shame, it says, because it says what they didn't feel, what did they feel? What do you think? What's the opposite of feeling shame? Confidence. 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 What else? Pride? Pride? Yeah, I think they felt honor. They felt honored to be this representative, to walk around and say, this is what God is like. That's what God wanted them to feel. And then, gosh, you guys, chapter three takes a dramatically negative turn. And the passage stirs up, well, let me get back. Stirs up so many questions. Now, as he began to read, as they finished chapter two, we, didn't, we know it's chapter two. Let's just, they're reading this and they get to the end of chapter two. They were naked and they felt no shame. What do you think Moses and God wanted the hearers to ask at that point? What was that? What happened? What in the world happened? And that's exactly the question that we're talking about tonight. Genesis 3 through 6 answers the question of what is wrong with the world? It adds to the story what has happened to God's original design. And more importantly, what do we need to be redeemed from? What do we need to be redeemed from that this one great redemption story is telling? Do you see that? 
So when you go to each of these chapters and texts, that's the question I told you a couple weeks ago. I want you to ask, what does this section add to the story? And I want you to leave tonight with a very clear understanding of this thing. I want you to clearly see that what happened was the foolish rebellion of Adam and Eve and every single descendant of theirs since then, but the gracious, loving response that God gave. That's what I want you to leave with. I want you to be very convinced, not just for them, but for us, that what is wrong with the world is our foolish rebellion from God. Now, to get there, I want you to look with me to Genesis 3. Okay, Tammy. Yeah. Now, in Genesis 3, at our table, we just began to talk about all the questions that Genesis 3 stimulates. It does a lot. And tonight, though, I, we don't have time to go into all what happened, all the questions that are there. Here's what I want you to do at your tables. You have a post-it note at your tables. I want you to get out a marker, and I want you as a group to describe what Adam and Eve did as a group in a two-word description, a noun and, a, and an adjective. You describe it, and then you write out why they did that. And then when you're done, you come and put your note up on this flip chart. Okay? You got 10 minutes. Go. Okay, not that this is a competition or anything, but we already have our first posting. The student table is our star table. Way to go, student table. You got three more minutes. Our table, our table is in a deep rabbit hole, I can tell you that. Don't forget to put why, not just what they did. Answer the question, why did they do what they did? Okay, by the way, I meant to mention earlier tonight, the pictures back on the back wall comes from, or come from the, the first activity we did a couple weeks ago. So Tammy's uh, memorialized that by putting those pictures up, which is great. I'm going to take a picture of this by the end of the night. I'd encourage you to do the same, just to look at all the different ways that we describe this. So I'm going to go over the top line first, that one about the two-word description, intentional revolt, prideful rebellion, foolish pride, dis disconstructed love, deceived representatives, rebellious demise, they rebelled, disgraceful disobedience, they wanted to control their destiny, willful disobedience, radical disobedience, Blatant disobedience, willful disobedience. Bro we got a pretty good common word there, right? Broken fellowship, rebellious autonomy, blatant rebellion, godlike aspirations. So I, my description is foolish rebellion. That's just my description. Now, I picked foolish because of Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, Paul describes it this way. For although they knew God... They neither glorified him as God or gave thanks to him. But their, their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. They were foolish. 
And why did they do what they did? Let's see what y'all said. They wanted autonomy to decide what was truth and what was good. So some one of that, did y'all, how many of y'all watched the video on the tree of, of life? Okay. It's very helpful because they give what I think is a very accurate description of what the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is. We'll get to that in a second. To be like God. Now, this is interesting. People say to be like God, but what did Moses already tell them that Adam and Eve were like? They were already like God. They were made in his image. So it, they weren't tempted to be like God. They were already like God. So it had to be deeper than that. They wanted to, they wanted to be God. Okay. That's this, um, you will be like God. They wanted to be like God. They became evaluators of God's word instead of doers. They wanted more different than what God had offered them. Interesting. If the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which has been debated for centuries of what it is, if it is the right to determine what is good and evil, which I think is the best description of it. They wanted to be autonomous. They wanted to determine what was good and evil without God. They wanted life without God. And how do we know that? Because they took of what God called evil and said it is good. That's exactly what they did. God had told them it was evil. But they said, no, no, no. We think it's good. They're foolish rebellion. Now, I like to, just, I like to look at it this way. In the garden, God had designed the world to be represented like this. I'm an engineer, so you got you to just put up with my geometric shapes. But God was over the man and the woman. They were in this triangular relationship, and the man and the woman were over creation. And that design was to be a flourishing design. What I think Adam and Eve wanted was the bottom triangle without the top. They wanted all the benefits of the garden without God. They wanted autonomy. They wanted to be able to enjoy life without God. And in their foolishness, they thought they could do that. But what actually happens is the triangle gets flipped upside down. Romans 1 tells us, Paul giving his commentary on this, he says it this way. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. They thought they could actually get this, but in fact, what God knew is they would end up there because their hearts are drawn and driven. Our hearts are going to worship. So you can either worship God or you can worship the created beings. And that was their foolishness. They thought they could actually do that. But God knew better. And so what happens? 
What happens in the garden? If we go back to this, I'm sorry. What happens in Genesis 3? Immediately after they eat, shame. The opposite. And you're supposed to see the contrast between 2.24 and 3. You're supposed to see that now instead of being unashamed, they are ashamed. And they cover themselves up, as I'm sure you all noticed. They fear God now, and they hide in their relationship with him, in the relationship from him. Every relationship is now ruptured. The design that was supposed to be so beautifully lived out is completely shattered. They blame each other or others for, the, for what they've done. And again, as you all I'm sure have seen, God judges them. And God gives them basically what they wanted. What? Hold on from. God gives them. You want life without me? You get it. And if you look at the judgments in Genesis, but for the man and the woman, there is one common word. Only one. Do you know what that common word is? Pain. You want life without me? This is what happens. You get pain. And every blessing that God gave them in Genesis 1.28 is ruptured and corrupted. The blessing of procreation, the blessing of subduing the earth, is, is those are completely ruptured. And the tie is not by accident. God says, this is what I designed it to be. You can't live out that design and this happens. Now, Jen and, and Chris, come up here for a minute, please. Would you peel that and eat it, please? I'll eat it. Huh? No, just go ahead and eat it. I'll eat it, too. You like tangerines? Okay. You don't want to do it? Why not? Because I don't. You don't what? I don't want to. But why don't you want to? It doesn't matter. I just don't. You just don't? I just don't. Go for it. Is it good? Okay. Now, you can have a seat. It's okay. I want you to hold that image in your mind for a moment. Chris, why did you eat it? Hungry? Okay. But how do you know that? Now, how did you know, Chris, that that, that tangerine wasn't laced with cyanide and you're going to die in 10 minutes? You didn't. Jan, sus Jan suspected that, I think. But what, what's at the core there? You ate it because you what? Trusted. You trusted me. I want you to think about that as you think about Adam and Eve taking that fruit 
of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Someone was telling them, you eat that, it's laced with cyanide, it'll kill you in 15 minutes. And they said, no, 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 I'm gonna trust the guy that says it's good. And to Jen's point, even though she didn't think, she ate, or Adam and Eve ate because they wanted to. They wanted life without God. That was the core of their sin. Foolish disobedience was not just that they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They wanted life without God. Now, last week, Gabe quoted Solzhenitsyn, who said, the problem of the world is that we've forgotten God. I think this passage teaches us even stronger. The problem of the world is we don't want God. Now, how do we see that played out in the rest of the story? It's tragic. The corruption spreads deeply and very rapidly. All of whatever malady there is in the world today, hunger, sex trafficking, whatever in your mind really you trouble with. Put that in your mind right now. Whatever it is, I want you to know that the problem of that came from this disobedience, this foolish rebellion. Romans 8 makes it very clear that because of what Adam and Eve did, God subjected the whole creation to frustration. And today it groans for the day it will be redeemed, and it will. This had massive impact what they did in their foolishness. And we see it very rapidly in the relationship between Cain and Abel. I mean, Moses had lots of things to pick from when he's writing this story. But he makes it clear, this is how bad it gets that fast. We don't even get one generation away from Adam and Eve and we got brother killing brother. And then fast forward even a chapter over to Genesis 6. And Gabe talked about this verse last week. He said, let's just, let's just camp there for a little bit. And that's what we're going to do tonight. This is what the Lord says late, just a few generations later. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only on evil continually. This isn't the description of what it was like in, the, in the, uh, the recesses of the worst cities in the world. This is what it, God is categorizing all of humanity is. Adam and Eve and their foolish rebellion spreads to everybody. But I want you to notice, if you look, the, the, the way that the, the Hebrew is there, every intention of the thoughts of their heart what he's saying there is the purpose of all their designs is on evil. The purpose of all their designs is on evil. And the ultimate evil is not sex trafficking. It's not um, uh, world hunger. It's not what's going on in Ukraine. The ultimate evil is to actually call God evil. 
to say, he's not good and I want life without him. And what God is saying here is that the intent, the design, the, um, the intention of every design of their heart is to get life without God. The purpose of every design is to live life without God. And that is the ultimate evil. Do you see that? It certainly results in all the things that we've described and I asked you to bring up. All the corruption. But the ultimate evil is to look at the good God who just made everything that there was in his abundant overflow and to say he is evil. And yet that is the intention of every heart of every human being that's ever been born since. Including mine. And including yours. Now, you see what happens is if the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is not only the ability, the right to determine what is good and evil, but the realm of all knowledge, then in fact, we don't have the moral capacity like God to control that. If another way of describing the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because in Hebrew, those are ranges, like the, um, the universes, the heavens and the earth. That's the way the Hebrews speak in breath. So if the knowledge of the tree of good and evil is the breath of all knowledge, that's what God has. But God has the moral fabric to control that, to keep it in his in his designs. So again, remember, all this is laying in creation, including the atom bomb, including the internet. All of that is there, but we lack the moral fortitude to keep it in line with God's purposes. And what do we do? We take it and make it evil. See, God, didn't, God knew we didn't have the capacity to have life without him. He had given us such incredible capability, but he knew we needed him to guard that. Do you see that? We have the ability today, we're on the verge of being able to, to control the genes of a child in the womb. I had a, one of my, the professors from one of my colleges, from my college, he said, we, I have parents come to us on a regular basis that have spent tens of thousands of dollars to raise their children's SAT scores five points. Do you think if you could go to them and say, your child's going to have a 130 IQ, we can make it a 180, that they're not going to do that? That's all knowledge without the moral character to control it. And we're on the verge of that in many ways, men and women. Okay, so this is what happens. That's the depth of the fall. See, we think about where we began. We're naked, unashamed in this incredibly flourishing, beautiful paradise to here. Now, what does God do in response to that? 
What does he do? Covers them. I think Gabe mentioned last week that most scholars believe that was the first animal sacrifice when he covers them. Takes their foolish attempts with fig leaves, which again, I think that would have been hilarious to watch that. And says, I'm going to give you skin. Now, he didn't go to the Louis Vuitton Vuitton store and buy the latest outfit. He had to find animals. That's the animal sacrifice. What else did he do? Cast them out and then set up a guard post to keep them out. He sent them out of the garden. The relationship that they'd ruptured with him, he sent them out and put a guard there to protect them. Why? Why does he say? Let's eat the tree of life. And now they're eternally damned. Okay, what else? I couldn't hear that. Brings judgment. Brings judgment out of the mouths of babes. Great thought. He doesn't just let them go. He brings judgment. We talked just a little bit about that. And that's worth meditating on in your own time. What did that mean? What else does he do? He provides for them. He enables them to procreate. He doesn't <laughs> cast them completely away from every blessing of his of, of creation. Great. Any other thoughts? Okay, that's a, this is one of the things he did that's really important, 315. 315, he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And for centuries, scholars have identified that as the first promise of Redeemer. And it's critical that you see that that the heart of God from the very beginning in the midst of this foolish rebellion, he says, I'm going to redeem you anyway. And it was a death blow to both. He'll bruise your head, he'll crush that, and you'll bruise his heel. You you are a venomous snake, you will kill that that seed, that that seed of your, which is the offspring, the seed, but he'll crush you. This is the beginning of the one, if you want to talk about the one redemptive story, comes from 315 on. Now you could say certainly 1 to 314 is a a big part of it, but 315 is where it's promised. And the rest of the Old Testament is setting up for the climax of the story, for the hero to arise. And that's what we're going to spend the next several months looking at how God orchestrates that to happen. What else does he do? In in Genesis 6, you study that, what does he do there? He destroys everybody that's there except for Moses and his family. I mean, Noah, thank you. Sorry. Now, what I want you to do for a moment, just on your own, I want you to think, what word would you use to describe what God just did in all of its fullness? 
What word would you use? Just take a couple minutes. And I'm going to ask you just to give me some ideas. What word would you describe, use to describe what we just said God did in one, in one through six? I mean, uh, three through six. Okay. What's your word? Grace. Grace. Grace hyphenated mercy. Mercy. Grace hyphenated mercy. Anything else? Hope. Love? Redemption. What was that one? Redemption? Redemption? Justice? Adventure. What was that one? I couldn't... Adventure? Adventure. Adventure. Invention? No. no. Like, a, like a ship? Adventure. Adventure? Adventure, like a ship. Yeah. Okay. Care? I don't, I don't think there's a, I don't have a right answer for you all in, in asking that question. I just was struck with how much God must love people. Foolish, rebellious people. And I think I get that by imagining again, what did Moses have on his heart that he would want the nation of Israel to think about this God. You see, the word of God was the word of God to the Israelites before it was the word of God to us. So what did Moses have in his mind that he would hope after they had received the Mosaic law after they had doubted God's goodness in the wilderness, after they had wanted to reject his authority, after they had wanted to be autonomous, after they wanted the right to determine good and evil. I think Moses and God wanted them to understand how deeply he loved them, including that he would discipline them. Now, what's the application we are to take from this, this section? I think the first thing is, we would ask, what is the application that Moses and the Spirit of God wanted for the nation of Israel? What did he want the nation of Israel in the wilderness to do with Genesis 3 through 6? What do you think? I think he wanted them to repent. in the face of this incredible love to acknowledge the depth of the wickedness of their own heart in wanting life without God to turn back to God and look for what? A redeemer. Out of Genesis 3.15. Now, that gives me ground to go, what does God want for us to do with this passage? I think it is the same. He, wants, he wanted the nation of Israel to see the problem is not out there with the world. The problem is right here with the world. You guys have probably heard the story about G.K. Chesterton after the London Times sent out a letter to some of the famous authors in the early 1900s and asked the question, what's wrong with the world? And he wrote back, dear sirs, I am. 
He wanted the nation of Israel and he wants us to see we are the problem. We have hearts that are deceitfully wicked apart from Christ. Now, the nation of Israel had to only look forward to a redeemer. We can look to our redeemer alive today who's given us what? New hearts who are no longer prone to that wickedness, but we still struggle with it, don't we? We still struggle with the, the right to determine what is good and evil. Right now, I'm being challenged with forgiving somebody. Now, do you see what's going on in my mind? I think it's bad to forgive them. And it's good to be unforgiving. I'm, I think what God has called good, I call bad. God calls good forgiving people. I call it bad. I don't know where you're struggling with that, but that's our regular struggle every day. We want to call bad what God calls good or call good what God calls bad. And that's what gets us in trouble. Doesn't it? We struggle just like Adam and Eve. And I put a tangerine at every one of your tables because I wanted you to remember this is not just their problem. The hope of the story that we're going to eventually get to is that through one man, sin entered the world, but through another man, Jesus Christ, many will be made righteous. Now that's not this story right now, we're not there yet, okay? But that's the hope. Right now, we're still camped in Genesis 3 through 6. And so I want you to do this for me. I'm going to give you 10 minutes. And I've given you some, here's some questions that I want you to reflect on. In these 10 minutes, and I would like you to write them down in your journal. Where have I been impacted by the fall and the foolish rebellion of others? Where have I perpetuated the impact of the fall through my foolish rebellion? Where am I struggling now, right now, to call something good that God calls evil, just like I told you, to forgive somebody? Or unforgiveness. Where am I struggling now to call something evil that God calls good? And what can I count on God to do with my foolish rebellion? What can I count on God to do with my foolish rebellion? Because I don't know about you men and women, but this is an ongoing struggle. And one of the things we can identify in this room is that every one of us is in this right here. This is not for Adam and Eve. This is not for the nation of Israel. This is for us. And I wanted you to see tonight that the core of all of this is our foolish rebellion and wanting the right to call what is good and evil. Okay, so take some minutes, a few minutes and meditate on this. Think about, write some stuff down. I began tonight by um, telling you that I wanted you to be, leave tonight convinced that the problem in the world is the foolish rebellion, not just of people out there, but right here, who want life without God so that they can determine for themselves what is good and evil. Now, thank you for putting up with my raspy voice. Again, I apologize for that. I know that's hard at times to listen to. Um, 
if you're interested in talking further about Genesis 3 through 6 and have specific questions about that that we didn't cover tonight, I'd be glad to talk to you about it. Um, it's a very provocative passage with lots of great insight. Um, and, and I really appreciate you tonight taking the time to just think, to pause for a moment, because every single one of the people in this room have been very, very deeply impacted by the foolish rebellion of others. There's nobody here that's been insulated from that. And there's nobody here that's been insulated from the perpetuation of that foolish rebellion by themselves. Part of this time is that we would get to know each other's stories even more about how both of those are true for all of us at the table. And to share even where we're struggling to still live this out. So thank you again for your investment. All of us can count on in all of this struggle the amazing love of this God. Deep, passionate, tender love for each of us. Could I pray for you all in the light of that? Father, when we look at these verses, they astound us. They astound us that you would pursue us in the, in the face of our open, foolish rebellion. You still pursue us and you love us. You protect us and at times, you discipline us all out of your love. I don't know exactly where each of these people are, Father. You do. Your spirit does. Would you nudge them toward wherever they're struggling with defining good and evil to deepen their submission to you, to follow you, Jesus, in your definition of good and evil? to trust that you've come not to steal, kill, and destroy, but to bring life again to us. We honor you. You are the hero that rescued us. We will spend the rest of eternity being grateful for that. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Thank you all.